0: Text this morning to be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 18. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way and their life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods, which you have not been Benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of your text. Um, thank you for the opportunity to gather with your saints to open up this ancient book that has everything we need for both life and godliness. And so, if you would be kind to us, would you move me aside? Would you speak through your text, stir our affections for the work of your son, drive us to mission by the power of your spirit, and let our lives be a sacrificial offering before your throne. Less of us, more of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome to Safe Haven. Um, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Tyler, and I've had the awesome opportunity and privilege to serve as one of the pastors here um, for, I guess, the last decade now. So it's been a, it's been a hot minute. Um, and so it is um, just a huge privilege to be able to crack open the text with you one last go. And so for the past 20 weeks, we have been walking through this theologically robust gospel vitamin of a book, the book of Hebrews. And so contextually, I just want to remind you, because we don't have time to go recap, you can go recap on Vimeo.com um, over about 20 hours of sermons on there for, through Hebrews. And so contextually, though, this book, it's written um, to these first century Jews who had been persecuted and tempted to revert back. To Judaism and the author of Hebrews, which we don't know who the author is, it's kind of open to speculation, um, but he's writing to these people to remember Jesus. And week after week, we've seen Jesus is better. He is the better X, Y, and Z. He is the better Moses. He is the better high priest. He is the guarantor of a better covenant. He is the better temple. He's the better sacrifice. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And Jesus is better. And I hope that's what you've walked away with every week that we've been in Hebrews. And so we too, in 2023, need to be reminded of this. Because just like the... um, One of the fathers of the Reformation, Martin Luther, said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget the gospel every day. And so we need to hear these things. So towards the end of this book, it's shifting from doctrine, which was heavy on the front side, into doxology, um, this worshipful life. Um, at the end of the book, and so, in other words, how does our right knowing propel us into right living? And so, we've looked at brotherly love, we looked at hospitality, we looked at community, we looked at marriage and sex, we looked at contentment, um, but but like briefing troops ready to battle the author of Hebrews today is going to look further debrief us in three exhortations um, in the gospel as we go about as pilgrims in this busted world um, to be beacons of gospel light. And so I want to open up with this. So when I first um, stepped into ministry here at Safe Haven, um, it, it was through the avenue of student ministry. And so those five years were deep... Seriously, some of the most richest moments of my life. Just fun. Just fun moments. Um, but where I'm getting at with this text <laughs> is uh, whitewater rafting. And ironically, I know that you just did this yesterday. And I, and I told Kayvon this morning, I put this in here and completely neglecting the fact that they just did this. But anyways, um, whitewater rafting. If you want your sanctification tested um, and to know where your faith truly lies, go whitewater rafting with a boat of middle school boys. Um, and so anyways, so when you go whitewater rafting at the Okoe, you, you get a boat and you, you're get, give, uh, given a guide in the back and that guide is giving you calls like two forward, two back, um, hit the deck, um, and if you don't hear those, it's probably because he's fallen out, and you're in trouble. Um, and so anyways, with, with where I'm going with this is, so whenever I first got started in ministry, I was an intern at the church I grew up at, and my youth pastor is still the youth pastor there, and he would always have me be in the middle school boy boat whenever we went. And I never never understood why he did that until the first time I actually did it, and it made complete sense. See, in the middle school boy boat, you have guys who are looking up in the, in the hills at Lord knows what, um, trying to ponder the deep thoughts of what am I going to eat when this is over with, um, you know, all kind of stuff, and completely not engaged on what is going on, life and death in front of them through class four and five rapids. And so anyways, as a good student pastor does, I passed that along to Austin Hallman whenever he stepped into student ministry. So Austin got the middle school boy boat. And so anyways, I say all that to say is when you don't listen to your guide, like a bunch of middle school boys do, um, because they can just figure it out, you're bound to end up upside down and in danger, right? (laughs) In some class four rapids. And I think that's exactly where the author is going in this first verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and verse 17. The first exhortation he's going to give us is this. Look back to your gospel guides. Look back to your gospel guides. So in the same vein, the author of Hebrews here is calling us to remember our leaders in the faith. Those who have spoken to you the word of God as we navigate this crazy thing called life. And so we absolutely should dive into the scriptures in the discipline of study on our own. I hope you don't hear me say that. You absolutely should study the scriptures on your own, for sure. Um, But the author of Hebrews here is telling us that the central means that God wants us to learn about him is through hearing the word proclaimed by our leaders. In other words, preaching the gospel. Okay, so St. Francis of Assisi, one of the early church fathers, I don't know if he said this, it often gets attributed to him. I like St. Francis, I don't have any beef with him, but if he said this, this is complete and utter garbage. So he said, uh, this quote is attributed to him, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. That sounds really good at surface level, except it completely goes against what scripture teaches. It's just not in the text. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Acts 1 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses proclaiming both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the most parts of the earth. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone? preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. uh, 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into silly myths. And as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, work, do the work of an evangelist to fulfill your ministry. So I hope you see just in those few verses, preaching the word is central um, to us um, gaining the word. And so the preaching of the gospel in the local church is the means that God has appointed to deliver his flock, period. Anything else is a disillusionment, period. And so this is why the author of Hebrews instructs us not to neglect meeting together. Remember back in, I think it's uh, chapter 10, don't neglect meeting together, some are in the habit of doing, but do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so Christ's appointed leaders are there to serve us as examples. Therefore, the author goes on to say, we should imitate their faith. Should imitate their faith. Elders and pastors do not and should not just point to the right way forward. They should be on the front lines in front of you, walking with you, taking the bullets for you. And so the author reminds the people of this to strengthen this little Jewish church as the persecution comes because a church that recalls its godly leaders and considers their life to imitate, it will in turn propel the church forward. And so in saying that, it would be extremely naive of me to stand up here this morning and assume all of you have had spiritual leaders over the course of your life um, that has done this well. It would be extremely naive and disingenuous of me to say that. And so, I want to speak to you for a second. Um, I acknowledge that there's pastors out there behind pulpits, week in and week out, who leverage their position to essentially to pimp out their people for a platform that that increases their own accolades and human applause. That's just true, period. I get that. And if you've been under that, a few things. One, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you've experienced that. I really am. Um, Two, Jesus Christ is sufficient for you where humans are not. He is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not fail you. Number three, that's not every shepherd. Don't clump every shepherd in with the bad lemon, okay? That's not every shepherd And number four. um, Our God is a God of justice, and he loves his bride. And so just know that. Know that. And so here's the deal. Like I said, for every one abusive shepherd, there's 15 awesome ones. So don't just clump that in there. For every one abusive shepherd, there's a Ron Manley. Ron Manley, for me, was my childhood pastor, whom I have not heard from in 15 years. And a few years ago, he went on a limb. He found out I was in ministry, and he went on a limb, reaching out to different people to finally get my contact information. And around 10 o'clock one night, he called my phone. I was like, who in the world is this? I thought it was a telemarker, but it was a weird time for a telemarker to call. And so he calls. He's like, hey, Tyler, this is Ron. I just... I don't know if you remember me. Um, I was a pastor at Kills Creek. I just want to call. I heard you were in ministry. I just want to call to pray for you and encourage you. Hasn't heard from me in 15 years. He's been at nine churches since then. And he's levering his life still to minister me at 77 years old over a gospel-filled phone call. For every abusive minister, there's a Chuck Evanson who's poured out the gospel into me as my student minister time and time again and walked me through my pastoral calling. He gave me an opportunity as a a 20-year-old to step in and intern at the church that I grew up with, and he's still there serving today. For every abusive minister, there is a Troy Nicholson who brought me under his wing in a as a 23-year-old to step into a mobile church plant to mentor me and to teach me the, the ins and the outs of a mobile church and what that looks like and leverage opportunity after opportunity to pour into me as a minister. For every abusive minister, there's a Hank Atchison who gave me my first opportunity to preach the gospel corporately and to remind me, as Jeremiah says, I have a fire shut up in my bones. Who can contain it? I have to go and do this. For every abusive minister there is a Sam Calloway who has pastored me time and time again over hash browns and grilled cheeses and delicious fatty bacon at Waffle House. And I could go on and on and on and on. And I say that not to boast in these men because they they should be boasted in. But to tell you if your story is marked by bad shepherds, there's good shepherds out there. There's good shepherds out there. And so, anyway, there's faithful pastors out there who give their life away for the sake of the gospel call. And I would bet many of you in this room have those in your life as well. And so, one, this is not in my notes, call them, call them and encourage them. Let them know that, let them know. But anyways, simultaneously, at the same time, those men are not perfect. None of those people that I've listed are not perfect. Church leaders don't get it right every time. I don't get it right. Troy doesn't get it right. None of our elders in this room, I'm confident, would say they get everything right. And so we're human beings, which means we're sinful, we're busted, but but by God's grace, we are wretched made righteous. And so, I pray that we would never, as a church, lose sight of that. I pray that you, as a believer, would never lose sight of that. Because when we acknowledge our sin, when we repent of our sin, when we model the grace that we've been given through the cross of Christ, and faithfully follow after him, check this, even when we fail, that's a good example to follow. That's a really good example to follow. And so that's a faith worth imitating. Leaders who are striving to be like Christ are worthy examples to follow. As Paul says, be imitators of me as what? As I imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11. And so not only does he call to, to us to imitate, but later in this section, I, put it, I went ahead and put it up there because I think these are two verses tied together. In verse 17, he calls us to submit to their leadership. And so we're called to obey our under shepherds as they follow after the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so in this, and here's the deal. This isn't hard to do when you have good shepherds who are laying down their life for the sheep. It's easy to follow guys like that. And so don't hear this as, as, as wanting to throw up in your mouth a little bit. But here's the deal. In our postmodern world, We just have to acknowledge it. We don't like authority. We don't like authority. Like, just think about it for a second. Even our music that we listen to pushes an anti-authoritarian view. My man, Easy e Dr. Dre, and Ice Cube, they taught us to bump the police, except they used a more colorful term, right? Even our music that infiltrates our mind is anti-authoritarian. We have political campaigns and agendas that celebrate the autonomy of a human at the expense of another. We have podcasts and Netflix specials about religious organizations spun with an agenda to make things right in the church is to diminish authority within it. There's always an agenda to those things. Don't miss that. And so... I could go on and on, and the digital age has only fueled this anti-authoritarian mindset. Why do you need a doctor when you can get online and be your own doctor on WebND? You know, a global pandemic is happening. Everybody on Facebook has a new PhD in biology. Man, I'm stepping on everybody's toes this morning. Let's do this. Um, Woo! But here's the deal. That's a little Ric Flair over there. I heard that's what I'm talking about. Uh, But here's the deal. In the Christian life, what I'm trying to say is this. You need a guide. You need a guide. And if we have trouble submitting to church leadership, you're going to really have a hard time in the kingdom of heaven where you will be submitting to the king of kings and the Lord of lords for all eternity. To be a creature is about submitting to the creator. And the creator puts those in place to walk alongside you and to stir you in your affections for him. And so, um, at the same time, we're not just called to imitate and to submit to leaders blindly. There are some leaders, and we'll see this later in just a second in the text, that will attempt to lead Christ's church down a road of sinful paths lined with subtle heresies. um, And you should run from them. You should run far for them, as well as all the other leaders who abuse their power and their influence to abuse Christ's sheep that we've already talked about by using them as a pawn to their ultimate end. And these are false shepherds, and they should be called just what they are. Um, but as I've said earlier, most leaders are faithful shepherds striving after Christ's likeness, and the Lord puts those men in your life for the reason to keep watch over your soul, because they'll have to give an account for it. And that's why, that's why Paul tells Timothy, like, hey, if you aspire to an elder, that's a noble task. Why? Because you're going to have to give an account for everyone who sits under your care. That's a big deal. And that's ter- that should terrify you. <laughs> if you're elders, it should terrify you. It terrifies me. Um, and so, I don't even know where I was going with that. Um, anyway, so they have to give an account. So shepherding... And here's the deal. Speak into this last part. Let it be done with joy and not without groaning, for that won't be of any advantage to you. Shepherding. Here's the deal about shepherding. It is a grace-drenched, heavy, heavy burden. Let me just walk you through it real quick. It's early mornings and late nights, seven days a week. It's getting the joy-filled calls of expecting parents while simultaneously walking through the dark valleys of shattered hearts of parents with miscarriage. It's welcoming new children while burying older saints. It's seeing marriages get birthed, marriages on the rocks, marriages getting restored, and walking through marriages that are irreconcilable. It's seeing the pain in the hearts of singles who long for partnership with a spouse and seeing singles find deep, meaningful purpose and mission in their singleness. It's a heavy burden looking after people and leading people, but for Christ's under-shepherd, it should always be a great and deep joy and a privilege to do so. It just should, because you're called to it. My heart's been overwhelmed these last couple of months just thinking about the privilege that is pastoral ministry. This is not a job. This is a gift. It's a gift, and it's a privilege to be able to take phone calls at 3 a.m. It's a privilege to show up um, at your front door when you're hurting and pray for you. It's a gift to do that. You need to know that. It's a privilege to do that, Um, and this is why the author says that it should be without joy and without, be for joy and without groaning. So, So, look back to your gospel guides, exhortation number one. Exhortation number two look out for gospel attacks, verses eight and nine. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those. benefited those devoted to them. And so, not only do we need gospel guides as we sojourn through this world, but we also need to understand the reality that gospel truth is always under attack. It always is. Truth is always under attack. Remember how we live in a postmodern world that hates authority. This is made manifest in our culture's attempt to reinterpret truth to fit its narrative. It just happens. The church is not immune to this. Contextually, in the early church, there were various, varying heresies all throughout attacking the church in the gospel of grace. Paul even warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. They won't spare the flock. Sheep are vulnerable creatures. And wolves love the vulnerable. So you need to know that. therefore, the author of Hebrews is pleading with the audience, don't be led away. And here's the deal about false teaching. It's not, not, hey, I know what the Bible says right here, and I'm going to teach the complete opposite of what it says. It would be real easy to spot false doctrine that way, right? But it looks a lot more like in the garden, right? If you remember back, did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? This is an ancient book. I mean, surely we've been reading it with the wrong eyes for all these years, right? It's subtle. It's subtle, man. False teaching was trying to get these early believers to revert back to the food laws. But in 2023, the attack on truth is still there. It's in a biblical view of sexuality. What what, what that looks like. It's in gender roles. It's in the relationship from... uh, from man to their country, Christian nationalism. It's in the inerrancy, the infallibility, and the inspiration of Scripture. Literally, I'm not making this up. Like two months ago, I said, I, said, I think it's in Troy or maybe the whole staff, a video of a church in Birmingham who was doing a conference on um, a well-rounded view of biblical sexuality. Busted. They don't understand what biblical sexuality is. And, they, and, and their, their view is, we've been reading this ancient book through the lens wrong all along. No! No! Goodness, no. It, it's still there. It's everywhere. And so one way for us as the church to know false teaching is to catch what is, the text says, strange or new. You can, you can uh, substitute that word for new teachings. So it's for us as the church to know what historically we have held to and what the Bible says. And I love the song that we sang before this. I mean, I couldn't think of a better song to fit this text. We are, if you are a Christian, you are a confessional Christian. What that means is you are holding on to what the scriptures proclaim, what the apostles taught what has been essential theological doctrine that has been agreed on throughout the ages. That's what it means. And so, literally, we talked about this last week in church history. Tyler Lee pointed out, the whole reason the Apostles' Creed was written in the 2nd and 3rd century was to combat Gnostic heresies that had made their way into the church. It's fantastic. Know why you believe Know what you believe and why you believe it. Biblical teaching should never be trying to reinvent the wheel when it comes to content, which is silly when we think of like I I think of like sermon series. You know, (laughs) like you see, I need a new idea for a new sermon series. You you have a book with sixty six different sermon series in it, and you can break that up all you want. You know, like that's not in my notes. See, I'm getting off. I'm getting off track. Getting off. Anyway, so biblical teachings, it's not trying to reinvent the wheel because this ancient book has everything we need for life and godliness. And, and the Lord is working through it. And so, this is why I can't encourage you enough to dive in. Dive in Deep. Know what you believe, why you believe it. Go to the systematic theology classes. Go to the church history classes as they're offered. Go to the spiritual formation classes as they're offered. Go do biblical studies. Dive in. Don't just buy into a theological system because a guy said something on a stage when you were six years old. Don't buy into it. Read the scriptures for yourself. Know why you believe and what you believe. Test everything you know against the Word of God. Why? Verse 8. Because Jesus, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And what does Jesus say about this book, this book? Just speaking of the Old Testament, everything within these pages testify to me. And so I can't encourage you to dive in enough. And this isn't new. This isn't new. This has been the same way, the strange teachings all throughout church history. Throughout throughout history, every major empire has brought with it strange teachings that both come and go. The Assyrian Empire lasted for 340 years. The Babylonian Empire lasted for 300 years. The Egyptian Empire, with all of its pagan stuff, lasted 450 years. The Roman Empire, the great Roman Empire, lasted only 1,000 years. The Byzantine Empire lasted 1,000 years. The term for a U.S. president, even with their ideologies, each and every one of them, no matter what side of the camp you fall on, that term lasts for four to eight years. The kingdom of God, according to Psalm 145 verse 13, it's everlasting to everlasting So sometimes it's good to just take a deep breath and to acknowledge the fickle and transient nature of earthly kings and kingdoms and these new strange teachings and ideas and to be reminded of the track record of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And 10,000 years from now, only his kingdom will still stand. And so, look to Christ. And so when we think of Christ this way, it affirms his divinity. And not only that, it it encourages our faith in him. So only God is immutable. He is the only one who is unchanging. He's the only one who is unwavering. He is the anchor for our weary souls that stays consistent throughout all time and all places. He is the one of Revelation 1 who was and is and is to come. Which is why when it comes to teachings, we first start with the scriptures and what the church has said throughout it, about it through the ages. Jesus does not change, so neither should our ideas change with the times about him. Number three. So look back to our gospel guides. Look out for gospel attacks. And lastly, look to Jesus as you live as kingdom citizens. Looking forward to the kingdom of God. That is to come, verses 10 through 18. And so here the author shifts um, to show us these early Hebrew believers why they should run from the false teaching that these certain foods would make you acceptable to God. Did you catch that in the text? I think at the end of verse 9. Be strengthened by grace and not by foods. And so remember, these believers are being tempted to revert back to Judaism and particularly the dietary laws associated with it. And so he's reminded them that those days are over with. Christ has instituted a new covenant. Don't revert back. Don't earn God's providential smile by refraining from shrimp and fatty Waffle House bacon. Praise God that we don't have to do that. But you do earn God's providential smile through solely resting in Christ alone in whom you are made pure and acceptable before the Father. And so for this to make sense, we need to understand the link between priests and sacrifices. And so priests used to be able to eat from the altar. They would eat certain parts of the animal sacrifices. And so, but the Hebrews, but Hebrews is screaming at us that there is a better altar, one from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What does he mean there? See, the priests who served in the temple worship, they had the right to to eat from the old altar. However, they couldn't eat from the true and better altar that we have because our sacrifice, believer, is the true and perfect one. Remember back to Hebrews chapter 10. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. But we don't partake in an animal sacrifice. We partake in Christ himself who... The Hebrews 10 goes on to say was offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. So the author goes on to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 11, look with me. That when the priests made a sin offering, the bodies of these sacrificial animals were taken and they were burned outside of the camp, which symbolically was there to remind them that to be inside the camp was to be in God's favor and in his presence. But to be outside the camp was to be rejected and despised by him. And so, when the animal sacrifices were made at the temple, they were taken outside of the camp and it was an object lesson for God's people that the judgment that was due them for their sin that they deserved had been diverted to the animal outside the camp. So animals rejected outside the camp so people could be accepted inside to draw near to God. And this adds a major weight to what he says in verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. When Jesus was crucified, this is fantastic, it was done outside the city walls of Jerusalem at Golgotha. So that the author here is screaming at us. Don't miss it. The location of Christ's cross shows us that he was accomplishing what animals could never do. He was doing what they couldn't do. It was on the cross that Jesus took God's wrath that was aimed at us and was cast out of the city. So those who were outside the cities as outcasts and lepers could be brought into the family through his cross. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rebels to righteous, harlots to heirs, sinners to sons. That's what grace does. That's what grace does. It's fantastic. Don't miss it. Therefore, we are to look to Christ and go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Did you catch that one? We just said he brought us inside the camp. But the text is telling us we've got to go join him outside the camp. That doesn't make sense. Or does it? What did Jesus say? Um, what does what Jesus call us to do? If anyone would come after me, let him do what? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he puts it this way in his book, Cost of Discipleship, I just love it. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. That's good stuff. And it's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To be fully associated with Christ is to sign your name on the dotted line for ostracism. It just is. When you stand on truth in a postmodern culture, It will cost you. And it's not just a postmodern culture. It's been like that throughout the ages. And so, one first century rabbi by the name of Jesus said this. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were one of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. To be associated with Christ... It's to sign up for rejection. It just is. And so the invitation of verse 13 is, believer, are you willing to embrace shame and humiliation in your association with Christ? Remember, John ten eighteen says, no one takes my life for me. I willingly lay it down. Christ said that himself. He willingly signed up for his rejection for you. Will you do the same for him? I think that's what the author is pointing us to. Standing on truth is super easy when everybody's around you applauding you like, Amen! But it's a completely different ball of wax when you're going against the grain, (laughs) the cultural grain. It's not easy when everybody's rewriting uh, what sexuality is, to stand on a biblical ground of what sexuality is. It's not easy. And so the invitation is, will you still stand when the crowd doesn't? And so... Standing on truth is not easy when it's countercultural. And this has been the theme throughout church history. The author is pleading with us to push back. When pushback comes, and it will, Christ said it would, to press on towards the prize. Press on. The ridicule is worth the prize, the risk is worth it. Because of Christ, even though we endure ridicule for his name, we can do it, endure it confidently. Because Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, believer, just be reminded of this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, we can bear reproach with Christ because nothing can rob you from Christ's grip on you. That's good news you can bear reproach with him because nothing can rob you from him. And so, which is why he tells us in verse 14, in this city, we seek the city that is to come because here we have no lasting city. We get so caught up on our fickle 80-ish years if we get that on our earth. We put all our marbles in this basket, accumulating stuff that won't last. And the author is reminding us not to be blinded in the here and now, but set our sights on. On the kingdom that is to come. The kingdom of Revelation 22. Where your your tears will be wiped away by the king of kings and the lord of lords. Where there is no more weeping. There is no more sadness. There is no more pain. There is no more disease. There is no more death. Because they've passed away. And we have eternal fellowship with God the father. And the ticket in is through the person and work of Christ alone. And so he was cast out so that we could be brought into the city. And so what is our response? Verses 15 and 16. I don't even know if I got it up there. I'll just read it for you. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what do we do church? We worship. We worship greatly. Right knowing should always lead to right living. Always. Allow your theological dogma to embody itself in a doxological life, giving praise to God in your everyday rhythms at the ballpark, your workplace, your backyard, and your dinner tables. Let your doctrine inform your life. And so it's interesting how the author here, though, he refers to this worship as a sacrifice of praise. Interesting how we're talking about animal sacrifices and how that fits in. It's like, what, what does that mean? See, under the new covenant that Christ instituted, our sacrifices are no longer ushered through the, to the throne through animals, but rather through our lives poured out in worship to the God who redeemed us. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse one. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as what? Living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. And so, our lives poured out for King Jesus, whether that be through boasting in him at our dinner tables with our neighbors and our co-workers whether that be through changing diapers back here in the nursery, whether that be through loading up some middle schoolers on a whitewater rafting trip, giving away your Saturday to serve at Hope Point Crisis Center, serving teachers in schools, changing out light fixtures, frying up fish, rocking a pedal steel or harmonica, drums, singing like Shane and Shane, whatever you do to the glory of God is a fragrant sacrificial offering before his throne. And so, this is the natural outflow of a life that's been impacted by the gospel of grace. Ben, you can come on back up. I'll end it with this. This is what Paul says. I think it's a good bow on what this means. The whole book of Hebrews has been screaming at us that Jesus is better. He is the means by which we have grace, through which we have grace. He is the richness of all the Old Testament, but then simultaneously, He propels us to a life of mission. This is how Paul wraps it up in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. So that we can't brag about it. It's not a result of works so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lecture your doctrine of who God is, of who Jesus is, that he is the better temple, the better sacrifice, the, the guarantor of a better covenant. He's better. Let that reality drive you to a life of complete abandonment for his glory, whatever the cost. Making every meeting count for his glory. Making every dinner count for his glory. Making every conversation with your co-worker count for his glory. He's worth it. He's worth it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you. Um, Thank you for just the opportunity um, to crack open the book of Hebrews um, with the body of Safe Haven. Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir our affections for you Um, And, Lord, I pray that if there's an unbeliever in this room, Lord, that um, that they would hear the gospel call, that they are far more busted than they realize, yet they are simultaneously far more loved than they could ever hope. And so, Lord, would you draw their hearts to rest and trust in the finished work of Christ on their behalf. And, Lord, for the saints of Safe Haven. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use them greatly for your kingdom purposes that you would continually remind them that you are better and that you are worth anything that life throws at them. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.